Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. You are listening to 3RRR. Huge thank you to the team uh, from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11. We've got you for an hour of science now, and we have some amazing guests on the show today. We've got a representative from the Australian Antarctic Division, uh, which is our second guest from that group. We're having a whole month of guests uh, working in Antarctica, which is pretty cool. And later in the show, we have Amy Shearer-Tidal, who some of you may know and have heard before before on the show. I think she was first on back in 2016. And Amy's written a couple of amazing books. And she also did those fantastic Pluto in a Minute videos that uh, we may remember from the Pluto flyby some years ago as well. But first up on the show, of course, I'm in the newsroom with my team. Good morning, Dr. Lauren. Welcome to 2021. Good morning and happy ハッピーハロウィーン。ハッピーバレンタインデー。ええ、ええ、ええ、ええ、ええ、ええ、ええ、ええ、ええ、ええ、ええ、ええ、ええ、ええ、ええ、ええ、ええ、ええ、ええ
um, high quality diet. Another one was spending up to 10 minutes a day just playing with your cat, you know, with a pet mouse or something. Mm -hmm. So interacting with your cat. Then they had things like puddle, puzzle feeders, using a bell, all sorts of different things. And of course, there were control animals where they didn't do any interventions. They just counted the number of prey animals that the cats brought in. And it came out that there are two key things that cat owners can do based on this study that will reduce the number of uh, prey that they kill when they're out and about. The first is if you feed your cat a high meat diet, uh, there was a 36% reduction in prey animals that they were bringing home. And this idea is possibly that there's some micronutrient that cats need that they're not getting when they're fed a diet that has some grain in it. So you just need to give them more meat, basically. Mm. And the other was, was just playing with your cat. 10 minutes a day of playtime reduced by a quarter the amount of prey animals that cats were catching. So the idea is that if you just give them the chance to play and frolic and try and catch a toy mouse, you reduce their tendency to hunt. So I think it's a super cool study mm. because it shows that quite easy things to do. I mean, I guess the meat diet may be a bit more expensive and I recognise that may be a barrier for some people. But if 10 minutes of playing with a toy mouse with your cat reduces by a quarter the number of lizards and mammals and reptiles your pet cat is going to catch and kill, I think that's worth knowing about. Yeah, it's kind of that. Uh, so, so feed them some heavier foods and exhaust them, and they'll be yeah. uh, too 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 full and tired to hunt. It kind of, it kind of makes like some sense, really. Yeah, it kind of, or, or all humans. Um, it kind of makes some sense. I think the. I mean, the other th interesting thing, of course, is you know appropriate desexing and keeping your animals inside, and and you Absolutely. know so that so that I, I'd love to know, Jen. I mean, yeah, I'm not expecting you to have these numbers, but what proportion of these kills are done by you know stray or unowned cats that have resulted from poor cat ownership and i think that's where there's a real big problem um so this, in addition, study, I, yeah. this study as far as i could gather was only for pet owners who you know yeah. were quite clear in saying we let our cats yep. roam yep. because if you're a pet owner who doesn't let your cat out or you have a cat run or whatever it is then of course your cat's not catching anything yeah. so this is saying there's going to be a proportion of people who want to have pet cats who refuse to keep them cooped up because of mm -hmm. their beliefs around what natural cat behavior is or yep. just logistics there's all sorts of reasons why you might not be able to prevent your mm. cat from roaming if mm. the cat is roaming what can you do to minimize the risk yeah, so no. you know there's obviously all different layers of, of response in the cat ownership it's important stuff and it is not a trophy of victory when your cat brings home some dead no. animal it's, it's no. bad it's bad news bad news <laughs> absolutely all righty uh chris kp who i have to say, explain to the listeners his video is very out of focus here for me he looks blurry which is a huge improvement but um chris yes. what do you got for us I I've well, I've apparently got a far better visage um, for you, um, but, but the listeners can just assume that I'm gorgeous. That's just the, yeah, let's go oh, with that. We do. Lack of any other evidence. Um, look, I wanted to talk about whales, if I may, briefly, uh, and specifically a bit of research that's come out of the uh, the Czech Academy of Sciences, uh, looking at or listening to whale song. But you've got to know a bit about whale song before I get into this. And that, there's two things to note here. One is when whales sing or when they make their sounds, they're really loud. Like they're really loud. Um, and they travel a hell of a long way. But don't think of this as just a, a line, if you like. This is a, it's a sound wave. So it actually bounces from the surface of the water down to the seabed and back and forth. So there's, there's a lot of, it's quite a complex thing. It's not just one noise, if you like. Um, and they last for a long time. Now, these scientists were studying six fin whale songs, which lasted from two and a half to 4.9 hours long. Um, so this is, yeah, this is um, Wagnerian opera style singing. Mm. It, it was going on for significant periods of time. Um, but in particular, they were studying what they could pick up of these of these songs 
via seismometers on the bottom of the ocean. So what happens is the whale sings, but that some of that is converted into a seismic wave, which can be detected by seismometers. And there's there's a series of them in one particular part of the, uh, the uh, Pacific Ocean. I think it's 54 uh, seismometers there. So when the whales make their noise, uh, some of it hits the, uh, the surface, some of it penetrates through that first sedimentary surface layer, which is uh, sometimes up to 600 metres thick, so it's quite a thick layer. Underneath that, there's a 1.8-kilometre a thick layer of basalt, and then there's other dense rock under that. And the waves actually penetrate through various parts of this and back out again. Whale song does this, and the seismometers can pick up on it. Now, what this is, what's interesting about that is that by listening to the signals or looking at the signals that are produced in the seismometers of the whale song as it bounces in and out of these various layers, the scientists have been able to actually correctly, um, correctly describe what those layers are like, like how deep they actually are, how big they are at different points. Now, that's not easy to do because if you want to do it normally, you have to go with an air gun and basically mm. fire, you know, fire noise at various points of the seabed and then map those things out. Now, the air gun thing is still more precise. It's still an easier and more precise way of getting a reliable answer. But the whales are doing it all the time. There's loads of them out there. And we know quite a bit about so, I mean, fin whales in particular are very good at singing. There are lots of them. We understand them quite well. Um, and they're doing it for us already. So if we've got the seismometers in a useful place, then we can use the whales to actually tell us quite a bit about what's going on under the surface of the ocean without having to do anything that involves air guns, I suppose. It's, it's, they're calling it a proof of principle, but I love the idea that it's something that it's, it's far less invasive, very easy, and if it's anything like as, um, as reliable as they're suggesting, what a fantastic way for us to actually be able to partner um, with our mammalian colleagues. Yeah, and the best part about that is, as you say, I mean, the use of air guns in that does affect those exact animals. And so mm, exactly. any reduction in the pollution, the, the audio pollution of yeah. our oceans, yeah. which is already out of control at the moment. Yeah, um, it's Fantastic, you know, fantastic. You don't want to be adding to that. You want to be removing things. It's a great story chris yeah great yeah story. i was very happy with that one mm, excellent great stuff <laughs> <laughs> very proud of yourself <laughs> all your responsibility right chris you did the whole study yourself yeah. got it published awesome. yeah well you know I've- uh, I, I, I'm going to have to start broad, broadcasting the video of, of uh, the show so people can watch it because one thing they'll see there is Chris's, Chris KP's video came into sharp focus for the rest of us as the story landed for him. And then, you know, <laughs> to, you know, as, he became, as he became more confident, he became more sharply focused in the video. I'm not sure if I've they're... I've been rehearsing for, for days. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Lauren, what do you got for us? Something well, hard to well, pronounce? Yeah, something hard to pronounce, which is always a bad idea for me. Well, look, while Chris KP has been working with the whales, I've been reading about Einsteinium, uh, which is element 99 of the periodic table. Uh, And there's been a really cool study that was published in Nature last week looking at um, some new science and some new um, ways of looking at at the element. And one of the really cool things about this particular study is that it has all of the normal people you'd expect. So Berkeley University are on there and Los Alamos National Laboratory. But a lot of the authors were actually graduate students and postdoc fellows, which um, really appealed to me. But basically, Einsteinium was actually discovered in the 50s from the debris of the first hydrogen bomb. And the reason that we're so interested in it is it's really hard to make. So it's hard to, to create and it's also extremely 
uh, radioactive, so it's very short-lived. So most of the isotopes that are around only survive for 20 days. So these scientists actually made an isotope which survived for 276 days, which meant that they could then do some investigations into how Einsteinium binds to other metals. However, what happened, obviously, last year is the COVID pandemic hit. So you can imagine how stressful it must have been for them. They managed to make tiny amounts, so 0.00025 of milligrams of this element. They had it in the lab, they started their experiments, and then it shut down. Hmm. So by the time they managed to get back into the lab, it was pretty much, I'm assuming, 24-hour days to try and get everything that they could. But they found some really interesting things. So they discovered what's called the bond distance, which is a basic property of the interactions with other atoms and molecules. And the reason that this is important is that because it means that we can now know how, it will, how Einsteinium will react with other elements and potentially opens the door to discovering other elements. It's hmm. cool stuff. I mean, these things, I, I like the, um, the timing, though, you know, making it last a bit longer. When you look, if folks, if you ever want to look at some of these elements, when people say we've added to the periodic table, some of them are around for such an insignificant amount of time. You can't even, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you definitely can't <laughs> say the name in the time in which they exist. <laughs> <laughs> they just they just vanish like within you know nanoseconds um, exactly. but, um, tiny amounts too yeah and you can you yeah. can work out that they were there because of what they decay into of course but um yeah. you know so They're the pieces they break up into you can work out what they were beforehand but it's um it's interesting to see how they can make longer longer versions mm-hmm. of it yeah yeah yep. I, and it's a it's a very cool element <laughs> if you get a chance to google it um have a look at, at what it actually does look like when you get enough of it yeah in, into a flask um it reminded me of the tesseract actually from the avengers oh, yeah, movie yeah. so it's this yep. beautiful sort of soft silvery um mag- it's a paramagnetic material and it's it's just beautiful yeah mm. well it's hard to contain these things you have to make sure that they're held in essentially in, in like stasis often magnetic stasis mm. so they they can't be touching other things you know these these materials exactly. can't be touching other things so you've got to hold them sort of in uh, mid i was going to say mid air but it's mid vacuum isn't that an awesome idea too that someone someone somewhere said listen if we're going to do this it can't touch anything yeah yeah <laughs> there's a bunch of engineers and technicians going okay hang on wait a minute what did you say <laughs> yeah. How do you do that? <laughs> yeah make Love a container that. to hold this stuff <laughs> Yeah. But the container can't, can't touch. touch what it's holding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's, uh, well, you know, hey, that's why we have magnets, man. Yeah, get on board, Chris KP. Exactly, yes. Yeah, it's the 21st century, pal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's all happening here. Um, folks, we're going to have to move on. Team, thanks so much for uh, news today. And um, I'm going to move on to our next guest in a few minutes. But great chatting to you and seeing you. And good to see you, Lauren, for the first time in 2021. Great to be back. Yep. All right, Great folks. to see you all. We will uh, take a break for some music and we'll be back in just a few minutes with our first guest from the Australian Antarctic Division. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gago on 3RRR. On the line now is Julie McInnes. She's from the Australian Antarctic Division in the University of Tasmania's Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies. Julie, good morning. Morning, Shane. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, look, it's great to have you. Now, um, for all us Melbournians there, how are you feeling down there in Tasmania? Pretty smug, I suspect. Uh, it's nice and free down there at the moment, yeah? Just quietly smug. A lot of friends and family in Melbourne, yeah. so, um, yeah, feel for everyone up there at the moment. But um, making the most of doing some bushwalks um, on your behalf. 
Yeah. Are you are you finding over the last year, I mean, you know, we've all been through a range of things over the last year, but has your research work been affected in a great way uh, as, as you know, in regards to the lockdowns? Because a lot of your work is sort of not exactly in the, in the lab or in, in the office. It's out, out in the wilderness. Yeah, look, it's, it's been, um, uh, there's been pros and cons. Um, being a, a scientist, a lot of us can be fairly flexible in where we can work as far as office space goes. So working from home has, has worked okay there. Um, and, and we have been very fortunate in Tasmania where we can still um, go into our workplace um, predominantly throughout the year. But, of course, it does impact field work um, and working on places like Macquarie Island and, and in sub-Antarctic, it can be quite tricky. And as you've possibly heard in the media, there's been some pretty strict restrictions um, with how we operate in those spaces to try and reduce the, the risk of getting COVID down onto those stations. So in that respect, um, yeah, there's been limited opportunities to get down to these islands, but for, for very good reasons this year. Mm. How many people are on those islands typically, like when you're down there working in a normal normal sort of time frame? Yeah, so Macquarie Island's got a, a permanent research station down there that's run by the Australian Antarctic Division and the Tasmanian Parks and Wildlife Service, and they've got about... 15 people there that over winter and in a good year where there's um, science able to happen down there um, it might increase up to about 30 people over summer with different research projects happening on the island mm. whereas Heard Island the other sub-Antarctic island um, it doesn't have that permanent research base and is visited uh, much more infrequently due to its uh, remote location. Yeah I was going to I was going to ask you that for, for some of our listeners who aren't sort of across where these two islands are give us, give us a bit of a feel for that you know how, how far between Tasmania and Antarctica are they? Yeah so Macquarie Island's about 1500 kilometres southeast of Tasmania and it's, I guess it lies um, probably midway slightly north um, but midway between Australia and Antarctica. Mm. Whereas Heard Island's much further south and much more remote. So that's about 4,000 kilometres southwest of Perth and about 1,500 kilometres north or 1,000 kilometres north of Antarctica. So you can imagine that's sort of a, a bit of a spot in the middle of nowhere. So it's, um, it's much more difficult to get to and without a, a permanent base there, um, you sort of need to be self-sufficient when the teams do go in there. Yeah. Um, but whereas Macquarie Island has that, that base and um, the personnel that are there include sort of Bureau of Meteorology teams, um, AAD researchers and, um, and crew that help maintain that station. Mm. Do you spend much time on these two islands yourself? I've never been to Heard Island, but uh, I've spent um, probably about two and a half, three years of my life on Macquarie Island, and it is a bit of a home away from home, so I do have a spot, soft spot for that island. Yeah, and and give us a bit of a feel for that because I, I think a lot of us, when we when we think of these places, it's kind of like you know they're, they're almost you know we often think of them as almost desert-like in terms of there's not much there, but they are incredible sort of ecosystems on these islands. Give, give us a bit of a feel for what it's like down there. Oh, look, they, they really are a hub for the wildlife. Um, so when you turn up on Macquarie Island uh, as a tourist or as a, a researcher going in there, you're usually greeted with wildlife um, as far as you can see. So whether that's elephant seals lining the beaches, you know, with one tonne of elephant seal or whether it's penguin colonies, it, it really is um, sort of the metropolis for, for penguins and wildlife. So I think someone worked out one time it's about one animal per square metre. Um, and, of course, they don't adhere to social distancing down there within the penguin colonies. So you do get thousands of animals all condensed into very small areas. So when you're there, it's just the sights and the sounds and the smells of the island just fill your senses, really. Yeah. And presumably many of those animals haven't had a lot to do with humans. So how, the, how does that interaction go when, when you know, you're surrounded by just so much wildlife? 
Yeah, look, often it's um, you're just another bit of wildlife out mm. there in the ecosystem, and so there's often curiosity, um, certainly from the younger animals, um, elephant seal, uh, wieners they're called, so the, the pups once they've left their, um, their mother are very curious, so they might approach people um, to see what's going on and what's happening. But largely speaking, um, you know, they, they've always got this um, born fear of anything that's mm. different, I guess. So, um, you know, if you stay quiet, stay low and give them space, then often they will come up to you to investigate what's happening. Yeah, I may have a subtle born fear of a one-ton elephant seal if it approaches me at high speed. Uh, these are big animals. Like, I mean, they are, they are seriously big animals. So there must, there must be some protocols in terms of how you interact with them once you get there, presumably. Oh, definitely. And um, Tasmanian Parks and Wildlife, who um, manage the island, have some pretty strict wildlife approach distances, you know, mm. for, for your benefit as well as the wildlife. And so often sitting back and watching is the best thing you can possibly do down there. And that's when it's up to the animal if it wants to come and interact with you. Um, but yes, you, you don't really want to get in the way of a one-ton elephant seal, uh, especially yeah. during the breeding season. Yeah. Now, now your work involves, sort of, I suppose, a lot of tracking and tracing of various species and looking at how they're doing relative, you know, to I, I suppose the you know, collapse of some parts of our ecosystem and so forth due to a variety of factors. Give us an idea of which species you're looking at and and how you go about that that sort of tracking and tracing sort of work. Yes, yeah, Shane. Um, so. We're looking at it, um, I guess, like you're saying, at an ecosystem um, level. So it's really tricky to identify what is happening in the Southern Ocean in the sense that, you know, it's a very vast space um, and it's quite difficult to understand the marine species that are in those regions and how they're changing. And we're seeing a lot of global changes at the moment through Mm. climate, through changes to fisheries pressure and so forth. So to try and understand what's happening with this, um, this ecosystem, what we can do is study things like seals and seabirds. So they're easier to access than, you know, your fish and cephalopod or squid and octopus of the ocean. And so we can use them as essentially indicator species to see what's happening in that marine environment. So on Macquarie Island, like I said, it, it really is a, a hub of activity when it comes to wildlife. And what we can do is try and look at the diet of these species and know where they're foraging to get an idea of what's in the oceans and how that changes over time. And that's often a tricky one. Um, none of those species particularly like to fill in survey forms, so it's a bit hard <laughs> to find out what was what was eaten on their last meal. Yep. So we're trying to find techniques where um, we can, or use techniques where we can identify the diet of these species without causing an undue disturbance um, to these these animals. And um, yeah, to do that, we're collecting their poo. Mm, I can see where this was going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what we're using is a technique called um, DNA metabarcoding, and people will have heard of this a lot more recently with COVID. So this is where we're essentially sequencing DNA to look at the genetic makeup of that. And as you can imagine, when a, an animal defecates, so whether that be a human or, or a penguin, um, some of that prey or some of the food that you've eaten is detected in the in the scats that are there. So we can actually sequence these scats to find out what they're eating and. Um, it means that we can collect these samples without um, approaching too close to these different species and it gives us the opportunity to sit back and and watch um, the colonies go in and collect these samples and then get a really um, broad and also specific um, information about the species that are in the diet. So we might look at different markers, genetic markers, that give us an indication of whether it's fish or, or squid or jellyfish in the diet. And then a set of markers that give us some really high detail information. So mm. which which fish species is it and, and which squid species? And from this, we can start to look at how the different species interact um, with each other, 
whether they have competition or overlaps, and then look at where we know that they forage and start to get some information about what species occur in these different regions. Yep. And they're quite spectacular. You get some species that will go all the way from Macquarie Island down to the ice edge um, of Antarctica, and whereas some that forage quite locally around the island. So it gives you this really broad picture of the species that are in these marine ecosystems yeah it's fascinating i'm just while you're talking about it, i'm trying to think of what in your data set noise would look like i mean would that be a scenario where weirdly when you're looking at a, a piece of penguin scat for example somehow that penguin ingested a bit of, of orca or you know um you know something you think hang on a minute this doesn't sound right but it's you know that might have broken up and you know somewhere down the track a, a much smaller animal has eaten what would be an absurdly large animal and you think oh, hang on there's and is that the sort of noise that you get in the data some weird stuff yeah and it's always quite amusing um, we we had albatross that were eating shark and i always imagined <laughs> um the, the fight that went on yeah, for yeah. that to happen but of course it's probably a dead shark or a shark that might have washed up that yeah. they're foraging on uh, but it certainly conveys quite a good image um, in your mind when you think of those oh, interactions. Oh yeah, and, and you should sell it that way. I mean, you know, I think it's uh, there's got to be yeah, we'll a, go there's got to be a slide <laughs> a slide that you put up at, at a talk that shows the you know the penguin you know riding the 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 great white or something you know the, you know the way to its meal. Um, but this this sounds like I mean it's it's a very complicated data set. Are, are you able to? Controls <laughs> the music in the background. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, are you able to um, sort of determine timing as well, like how long ago? Um, these events occurred and where and sort of does that that presumably allows you to map not just the the prey species but also the the predator species and the whole lot all in one go is that is that right yeah and in an ideal world you would put um, satellite trackers or gps trackers Mm. on these animals at the same time so you could get this um, spatial um, idea of where they're foraging as well and that will be the next step hopefully in this work at the moment where really trying to set up a bit of a framework with this scat DNA where we can um, know who to collect from. So as you can imagine, different species go to different areas. Yep. So if you wanted to find out about the ice edge, which species would you go and collect from local around Macquarie Island, which species? And so this work, um, this postdoc at the moment with um, the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies, um, so it's a work run by Dr Marianne Lee there, which was trying to, so at this stage, um, come up with this framework that we can then use in the long term mm. And when you're starting talking about detecting change over time, you really are trying to establish programs that can yep. can last the length of time, really, and, and detect these big changes because often yep. we're not talking annual changes. We're looking at sort of decadal. Um, yeah. So that's that's the sort of exciting side of it at the moment is um, seeing what we actually can do with this data. And, and it really is sort of like Pandora's box, really, when it comes to the data. There's, yeah. there's a lot of opportunities and scope for it. Yeah, no, look, it's fascinating. Julie, thanks so much for talking to us today. It really is great getting some of you on that are, you know, doing all this amazing work with um, with Antarctica and everything between Australia and Antarctica and all that interesting region. So um, looking forward to the, the 10-year review of, of this project and see what it looks like in 10 years once it all pans out and you get the, the complete map and so forth. Maybe it'll be in five. Maybe I'm being a, you know, a bit uh, out of whack there. But uh, it really does sound interesting. And, and, and good luck. I hope, I hope things um, you know, continue uh, well. Um, with regards to the pandemic restrictions and so forth, and you can keep doing the work. But, um, yeah, thanks for being our guest on Einstein and Gogo today. Thanks so much, Shane. Thanks for having me on to the show. Folks, we're going to take a break for some uh, music, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hopefully on the line we'll have Amy Shura title from the U.S. Triple R. 
Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane, and on the line now, we've got one of our old friends from the show, Amy Shura Title. Good morning, madam. How are you going? Good morning. I'm, I'm going well. How are you? Good. Now, where are you located? Are you in, in L.A.? Yes, yeah, Pasadena. Pasadena, so. yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and thanks for having such beautiful audio uh, equipment there at your end. <laughs> it is a rare pleasure. Yeah. Yes, to have. Yeah, I, years ago I thought maybe I would start doing a podcast in conjunction with the YouTube videos and then realized that's a whole lot more work that I'm just not up for. So I do have like a like a $700 audio setup just <laughs> sitting here, um, which I use. I do use it now. I've, I've found some outlets for it, but yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I sound good. <laughs> you do. You sound great. Now, um, the last time, well, it's been a while. You've been in the studio, of course. Yeah. Uh, you, we, the, yeah. I remember the first time we interviewed you, you, I think you were somewhere in Canada and they were launching a rocket at the time and you had to run off partway through the interview because the rocket was about oh to launch. Yeah, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was in, that was in the, the Roswell <laughs> Desert in New Mexico. Oh, and go. I was filming yep. for a documentary. Oh, my God. And we never got the rocket to launch yeah. because then the something happened with the electrical <laughs> and we had, to, we had to fake it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, hey. <laughs> so I, I recorded the like, this is amazing, and then they went back and launched it later. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's the magic of television. No one's going to know. Yep. But um, yep. since then, of course, we, we talked about um, your first book, um, Breaking the Chains of, of Gravity, which was absolutely fabulous. And for people who haven't read that, um, just give us a quick reminder of what that was about. I mean, I read it and I loved it, but I'm a yeah. bit of a, you know, space junkie like yourself. So, yeah. <laughs> Fair. Yeah, no, Breaking the Chains of Gravity, I, I define it as like a prehistory of NASA. So, um, you know, especially in the United States, everyone kind of knows NASA as just the National Space Agency and it does all these things and goes to the moon and goes to planets, but nobody ever stops to think about like, where did NASA come from? Because it wasn't just born in a void one day and then mm. magically figured out how to do things like send humans into space into the moon, it, it was building on, you know, decades of research with the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics and other private groups um, in aerospace medicine and all those things. So it, it kind of teases together the story of everything that happened before NASA was created so yeah. that when we get to NASA, you understand where it came from. Yeah. Now, I, I have some, it was quite a few years back now that we, we talked about this, but I have some recollection of you like just being in the bowels of libraries and archival places for you know six months without food or light or friendship <laughs> in order to research this book is that i mean that that's kind of the image i have of how this came about it's like not that far off there's food and there's light but it is a very weirdly solitary thing writing a book no for i mean for that one it was a lot um because it's like such big u.s history a lot mm. of like the military you know the air force and the army had its plans for space flight there were you know kind of bigger things of aviation medicine and stuff happening a lot of that has been digitized right um, um, so I did go to NASA headquarters. I did go to the National Archives, which are in uh, Virginia, I want to say, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm. Um, but, um, yeah, it was it was a lot. I was able to do kind of ask archivists if there was a digital copy and find it and get it all remotely and kind of look at it from my desk, which no one can see, is in front of a giant window. Right, <laughs> So there's right. light. There's some light, some light, yeah. yeah. Um, now, yeah. You've, you've now written a, a second book, which um, came out mm -hmm. last year, I believe it was yeah, at 19 and, the, and yeah. the paper the bat the paperback comes out on tuesday oh wow excellent timing yeah. and yeah. this is a this is a very different story and it's one that i think yes. a lot of people you know would have hoped would have been told a long time ago but um yeah. i guess it just had to wait for you to come along but give us a bit of a rundown of, a bit of a rundown of, of your second book <laughs> 
Yeah, so uh, the second book, the new one is Fighting for Space, and it is the dual biography of two female pilots whose stories come to head with the issue of female spaceflight in the 1960s. And it's entirely true, and one of the things I was really excited about in writing this book was setting the story straight, because have you heard of the Mercury 13? I don't know how far out of the United States this story gets, but you're a space person, you're nodding. Yeah, I've, I've heard, and I'm probably one of three or four in Australia who has, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I'm a Let's space give it a couple nerd. talks. I've given yeah. a talk. Oh, wow, a couple talks about it. So a few more in Australia, I know have. But um, so the, the the story of the Mercury 13 basically says that there were 13 women who were qualified as astronauts but didn't fly in the 1960s because sexism. But that is incredibly oversimplified and inaccurate. And when I was reading about it for for a conference years and years ago, um, something about it struck me as odd because not only did these narratives never take into account what NASA was doing, which from writing Breaking the Chains, I know what NASA was up to at the time and my other work. I know intimately the issues NASA was facing at the time. Um, but there was also this weird villain in the form of Jackie Cochran who comes into this uh, congressional subcommittee hearing, which is kind of where the story kind of comes to a head with a big, you know, congressional hearing about whether or not NASA is unduly discriminating against women. So you have your protagonist, who's this woman named Jerry Cobb. She's in her early 30s, and she's testifying that NASA is unduly discriminating against her when she's qualified. And then there's this woman who comes in, who's, you know, 25 years older than her, says women shouldn't fly in space, and then, like, flies home to hang out with her pet raven in a forest. I mean, she's basically a Disney villain in typical retellings. <laughs> and I'm like, this doesn't make sense. Because right. then I looked into Jackie Cochran, and turns out she's like the most decorated pilot of the 20th century, first woman to fly through the sand barrier, presidential confidant, saved LBJ's life one day. I feel like I always have to say, I always forget non-American audiences, Lyndon Johnson's right. life. Uh, Eisenhower wrote his memoirs at her house. She was married to one of the richest men in the country. Like, there's no way she didn't have more to do in this story. Mm, yeah. So I started looking at the story from Jackie's angle and realized it's her story and everyone else kind of weaves in and out of it. And that's where the kind of dual biography setup kind of came from. So it, it progresses chronologically from, I mean, it's basically Jackie's whole life because she's unbelievably fascinating um, and kind of how she ended up uh learning to fly becoming this like she led the women's air force service pilots in the second world war i mean how she kind of did all of that and how this younger generation came in and you kind of see how you know the the barriers jackie was fighting against to become a pilot in her own right these younger women didn't have the same barriers a, a generation later but they both were flying at the top of their game when america trans uh, kind of translated into, from aviation into spaceflight Hmm. And all of a sudden, you know, Jerry just happens to be in the right place at the right time with the right age to take the medical tests. Right. And it becomes this thing where she takes a series of medical tests. Randy Lovelace, who if you've, I know you've seen the right stuff, that yep. scene, you know, the, what's his name? Al Shepard. I can't remember the actor running down the hall with the anima bag, like all of that testing. Jerry did that testing. And when Randy Lovelace announces that a woman passed the medical tests given to the astronauts, the media, as it is wont to do, says there's a woman astronaut. And Jerry's like, sweet, I can leverage this to be an astronaut. And Jackie's like, everyone's asking her because she's the most well-known woman pilot. She's like, there's no woman astronaut program. What's happening? And NASA's like, we do not want to talk about this. We do not condone this. And it just, it's becomes this huge mess. It's, just, mm. it's a huge mess. So I, I was really excited to, that's the long version. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I had so much fun digging into 
letters and correspondences and reports and, and media coverage to figure out what actually happened yeah. because it's incredibly complicated and very nuanced and you know not everyone agreed at the time not everyone agrees now so um yeah, yeah. It, was a, it was a really, really fun one to, to research. And have you written it? I, I know reading your previous book, it was written, you know, many of these sort of space books can be space books. <laughs> I shouldn't, you know, <laughs> historical books about the history yeah. of space flight. Um, but, you know, um, space books, they are often written in a way that can be very hard for lay audiences to read. And one of the things yes. that I really enjoyed about, you know, because I'm a sort of slow reader, I'm a bit of, you know, lazy in that regard. And, and, but I enjoyed yours because the, the, the individual story stories in the first book were, were so clear you know there were there were people involved and it wasn't just mm-hmm. about technology I mean it, it sounds like this one follows a very similar yeah. people story yeah this one I actually set out to write something that feels very different mm-hmm. um because I, I wanted it to to it's it's you know there's we've got 42 pages of references because at one point my editor's assistant emailed me she's like we got to figure out your footnotes because there's like <laughs> 1200 of them and we're gonna have an extra like 80 pages just because your footnotes are insane and i was like okay <laughs> let's yeah. figure so like it is just all that to say it is extremely detailed research it is entirely true but i wanted the reader to kind of get lost in the story and make mm. it very narrative so it's it's different in the sense that the narrative is kind of the leading element here and it's there's there's tons of detail and tons of history but like any dialogue is from a letter any or a co- recorded conversation so right. there's not i'm not putting anything in anyone's mouth but i was really lucky that jackie is an epic pat was an epic pack rat and she left everything that she ever wrote every letter she sent she received she saved anything it's all in the eisenhower library which is in the national archives which wow. means i could go in and look at everything i have probably 7,000 pages that I photographed and had printed of letters, of notes, of correspondence, of drafts of her book chapter to see how it changed over the years. Um, So I was able to really piece the story together from all of the things that these women actually wrote and said. It wasn't just reports. So I was able to create a much more narrative tone with it. Yeah. My God, Amy, it's like you're a historian or something. You know what I mean? (laughs) I know, right? I think, imagine I, I just, that. Yeah, imagine that. I just hope uh, you know people listening if they if they manage to get a copy of of the book, um, fighting for yeah, space. It's sadly, not available not, in Australia yet. Uh, oh, we can get stuff. There's, there's ways. I know you there's can, ways. but I know that the shipping yeah, yeah, costs yeah. are insane. It's brutal. It's brutal. But um, but for I that know. many footnotes, you know, I'll pay extra if the, if something's. <laughs> <laughs> I know someone's looked at seven thousand pages yeah. of material to do it. I should I should also say it's ebook and audiobook. Oh, there you go. As narrated by me this time, so it is available without having to physically ship <laughs> the book yeah well, that's good yeah, actually that, yeah. that's for, for lazy people like me you know who, who rarely get to read you know the the audiobook thing can be a good thing yeah now amy uh i'm assuming you can stick around for a few minutes we're just going to take a short yes. break for some station announcements Absolutely. and then yep. we'll keep you on for the rest of the show that'll be a bit of fun we'll talk Fantastic. about what you're actually well other stuff you're doing because yeah. i know there's a lot yes. going on so hang in there <laughs> folks uh, here's some important uh, station announcements and we'll be uh, back in just a moment with amy shira title triple r uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Go-Go. I've got Amy Shearer title on the line all the way from the US. We're talking about all stuff, space and things she's been up to in her new book and so forth. Amy, 
It's been a long time since. I think the first time you and I met, it was because of your Pluto in a minute videos, which mm-hmm. I'm not sure was. I yeah. mean, I'm not sure whether you got that gig because you're really good at speaking really fast, really clearly. Or <laughs> that's true. <laughs> there's definitely an aspect there, I think. But um, there's so much coming up with regards to the Moon and Mars and so forth. Are we going to have a Mars in a minute or a, a Moon in a minute? Is there are there plans? Well- well, they haven't asked me to work with them, so not as of yet. <laughs> no, no, I um, I mean, in that in that instance with Pluto in a minute, because I was working with the uh, with the mission team, which was such a unique and awesome experience to be mm. able to do that. But um, you know, if if uh, if they're if they're not employing me to do it, I'm probably not going to be able to turn around a video every day. Especially my own <laughs> videos on my channel are getting much longer and much more detailed, which I'm really enjoying. Yeah. So you know, um. No one really knows what the YouTube algorithm is or like mm. how it works. I, I went to a YouTube party once and the cocktail of the night was called the algorithm. And I asked the bartender what's in it. And he said, <laughs> nobody knows. And I said, well played, give it to me. <laughs> I thought that was great. But, you know, but there is some research says like people are okay with longer form videos now. So I've gone mm. from like what used to be a five to eight minute video to like a 45 to 50 minute video. And I'm really enjoying myself. I've been, I've been doing a lot of the, the latest is a uh, cold war aerial espionage, which I find absolutely fascinating. Cold um, war aerial espionage. Me, yeah. Yeah. yeah right. The, uh, I did, did three videos, three hours almost on the U2 and how, how it worked, why it happened, how the politics, you know, Eisenhower's dilemma of it and got into the Corona satellites and I'm working on the SR 71 right now, which is, you know, all, all very U S history for your Australian audience, but, um, you know, really interesting cold war stuff that is tangential to space, but is very much within the realm of that era of technology. It's that, that period where technology was so new and there was so much potential and everything that there was kind of no limitations on what people were willing to try, mm. which makes it really fun. So, yeah. yeah, I've that's been my latest little endeavor. And is that is that still on your vintage space channel? Yeah. Is that yeah? So that's yeah. still going strong. Um, yeah, presumably. that's, that's yeah. still my main my main thing, um, which I'm I'm really enjoying. It's uh, taking it. You know, the videos are a little bit less frequent now not quite once a week more like every three to four weeks because yep. it takes a while but um you know I've, i'm i'm sitting here surrounded by old cia reports and it's really fun to get into something that's a little bit different but still that era that's so fascinating and yeah. it all it always plays into space somehow because it's all it's all cold, cold war you know yeah. well i think it's Especially okay unless people, it's okay yeah. until you start sort of sticking those old those cia reports on your walls and stuff and connecting them <laughs> yeah. up with bits connecting of, them with yarn <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's when it gets a bit out of control well, I do. I do have a report over here sitting on my shelf, looking at me about MK Ultra, which was the CIA mind control <laughs> experiments. That one is just going to be fun, I, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, how old yeah. does some of this stuff have? I mean, with your vintage space, a, a lot yeah. of the things you do are, you know, the older space stuff. How old does it have to be before it, it gets the interest of Amy? <laughs> I I'd kind of say uh, the age has to be what I think is neat because um, mm-hmm. there's no like hard and fast cutoff. I'm I'm slowly bleeding into the the 80s and some shuttle mm. era stuff, but yeah. as it relates to um, again, I'm kind of sticking with this, this the, from the Cold War angle, not the straight space angle, because I don't think the shuttle's the most interesting thing we've done. I mean, I've I've been very outspoken about it's it's not the most fascinating to me. It's, I kind of describe it as like orbital nascar you know late oh. late last year we had terry verts on you know one of the shuttle pilots uh, he, he would yeah. be horrified to hear you say that oh i'm sure i'm sure 
I'm sure. And it's not to say that it didn't do amazing things. I just think if we're talking about like, you know, a program to learn the ins and outs of the, the Apollo era stuff will endlessly be more fascinating yeah. to me. And that's a, that's a personal thing, it's, but yeah, I think it's very yeah. interesting. I mean, we had, um, we had Gene Cernan on the show not long before he passed yeah. away and he, he made a very interesting comment, which I thought, um, which I, th- I think you'll appreciate is that the shuttle era is really around the exploitation of space as opposed yeah. to the exploration of space. That yes. was the way he described it, which I thought was yeah. a very interesting sort of view. Uh, you know, now he was an Apollo astronaut. So, yeah. you know, that was, that was the way he saw it. We weren't really exploring space with the shuttle. We were exploiting space. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. I think, and I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's that's very. Uh, Gene Cernan was such a lovely man. Mm. Um, I think that very, very much sums up kind of why my interest is predominantly Apollo era because it's the for me it's that that first time figuring out a technology, figuring out how to have a human survive in space, how to launch something heavy enough to land on the moon, how to land on the moon. I mean, that's such fascinating problem solving, and the decisions that led to that I find to be just mind-blowing and with the shuttle you know building the shuttle the decisions i find interesting but once it's kind of going it's like okay we we tested some stuff we put up a satellite we did this we did that like it becomes a little bit more routine and less more yeah exploit exploitive not in a bad way but you know exploiting space but it's it's not you're not doing something new with every mission necessarily and it's for me that's kind of where the yeah, why why my interest has never firmly been in the shuttle camp, but yeah, you know, and, I, I brought up. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to ask. How, how do you how do you perceive all the current stuff going on at the moment? Like NASA's testing the new space launch system and so forth, and all the various things going on. It 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 must feel like relearning what they once knew fifty sixty years ago in slightly different ways. But you know, like much of that technology, you know, it's it's almost like we forgot. Like we could do it, yeah, and then we couldn't do it. Like, yeah. yeah, it's it's straight and I and I I have to I feel like I have to preface this because I I don't follow space news as closely as I do space history. I mean, it's just again, mm. this is where like my interest comes into play. Yep. Um I think there's there's a lot um it's kind of hard to tell. I mean, you know, we had a former president <laughs> who said go back to the moon in 4 years and everyone who knows anything about space is like, "Well, that's not happening." Yeah. Um <laughs> And, you know, they're still, yep. you know, they're announcing the crews of this mission mm. to try to get congressional funding. They're not, they're, there's no way we're making it in four years. It's well, where's stuff. the rocket? <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, space is hard, guys. Space is really hard. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, it's tough to watch all this stuff and also look at it and think like, who knows? Yeah. Who knows what's actually happening behind the scenes? And, and when you have a, a company like SpaceX, you know, SpaceX is taking great strides and actually mm. creating stuff that really is working. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of the cult that is SpaceX fans. Um, but, you know, then it, it SpaceX is also not public. So yeah. when it comes to figuring out what they're doing, kind of where they where they are in the scheme of things, it's a lot harder because they don't have to tell me, you know, NASA, NASA is public. I pay taxes. Yep. It's got to tell me what's going on. SpaceX is just like, no, we have a plan to go to Mars, but we're not telling. It's yeah, like, yeah. cool. Very, I don't know yeah. that I believe that. <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting so, stuff. And, yeah, the, and, the landscape is very different. Yeah, very indeed. And if you were, you know, let's say you're still writing books in, in 50 years, Amy, is, is there going to be a book on Space Force? Will there be a book on Space Force? <laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see if Space Force. I'm very confused. I'm very curious what's going to happen with Space Force, which, by the way, have you seen the Netflix show? Oh, yeah. I'm basing most it's... of my knowledge of Space Force on that Steve Crowell show. I'm sure there's other I details would... out there. <laughs> 
I, I, I think the best thing they could have done, first of all, they trademarked the name Space Force, yeah. which is really funny. But also, I love the moon camo. Yep. Yeah. Oh, God, that show is amazing. And that's the extent that Space Force should exist, in my opinion. But um, I don't really know what's going to happen with Space Force, to be honest. I don't know enough about how you create a new military branch in the United States and whether or not you can undo it when you realize that, like, there are so many treaties preventing the militarization of space. Mm. Making a military space agency is, like, literally against everything that people have set up for the last 60 years yeah. so i don't know i don't know what's going to happen it's interesting stuff now you're you're you know and one of the the better science communicators that i know around the world you do some amazing stuff you've written some amazing mm-hmm. books although i could only speak to the first one I haven't read the second one it could be garbage i suspect i not, think but, you'll you know, enjoy it think it's very it. different but i think you'll enjoy it I mean, yeah <laughs> when when you're looking you know i just want to touch on this but when you're looking at what's happened in the u.s over the last few years around the communication of science i mean it must like with me it must sort of drive you a bit bit nuts there's i i um it's actually funny you bring that up because this leads me into my i actually have a very strange side project that i've taken on because i'm stuck at home for the next Mm -hmm. year so why not i'm i'm actually taking on a deep dive into american history because living here and because i feel like i should say this for any of your listeners i'm from canada so i didn't grow up in this country i was not educated in this country i moved here about a little over 10 years ago now um but you know, seeing the way people distrust science, seeing the way people have this, like, you know, this me first attitude and refusing to wear masks, it's all very confusing. And no other country does this. Mm. And I really want to understand, like, what happened, America? How did you end up like this? And I feel like so many of these things are like national identities that are learned. And like this, there's there's a weird identity of, of part of America that's just like, well, it's not my experience of science. So I just don't believe it. And I'm very curious how America and like, I mean, it's not just the, the, you know, not paying attention to science. We've had so many issues in the last few years. Um, it's, it's astounding to me that things are this bad and I really want to understand where it all came from. Yeah. So my little side project right now is a deep dive into like, like we're starting in 1300 American history to understand yeah. how the country kind of took its shape. Yeah. It's, um, it's yeah. fascinating. It's fascinating. I mean, we've only got a minute to go, Amy, but I think yeah. um, it's that scenario I, I struggle with where I believe the science that created my my smartphone, but I don't believe all these other pieces of science because they're inconvenient yeah. for me. People, and, and this comes into like conspiracy theorists, when people have an experience of a car driving down a road, but there's no road for a rocket, so how does a rocket fly? It's mm. like the, you, when, when it's beyond the limit of your experience, because it's not something that most people have an experience of, you can't understand it, so I don't try. It. Yep. And I don't know if that's prevalent any, in Australia at all, but it is very prevalent here and it is very confusing. And as a science communicator, it's baffling and yeah. sad. Yeah, it's <laughs> tough work. Well, we're going to have to end our chat, but good to talk to you again. And we'll certainly do it again. And just once more before yeah. we go, your book is called and is available where? Uh, my book is called Fighting for Space. It is available. Uh, it is not ebook and audiobook narrated by me. Yep, sounds great. Amy, it's as always a pleasure speaking to you. I think this is your third time on the show and you've been in the studio. You've you've done one phone call, one in the studio, and now one Zoom call. I'm not sure what's next, but we will chat to you again at some stage. We'll find some new technology. (laughs) It's been lovely to see you, lovely to chat. Thanks for having me. Good to talk to you. Thanks so much. Amy Shiro Title from the US. Uh, Have a great weekend.
Folks, uh, we're almost out of time. We're going to have to hand over to the team from Eat It. You've been listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a fantastic Sunday. For those of you in Melbourne, uh, enjoy your lockdown. We've done it before. We can do it again, and we will get through it. So for me, signing off, handing over to the team from Eat It. Have a great weekend. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.